Welcome back to the Religions of the Ancient Mediterranean podcast. I'm Phil Harland, a professor at York University in Toronto, and we're continuing in this series now with Paul and his communities, looking at 1 Corinthians. In the previous two episodes, we focused our attention on what was the situation among the followers of Jesus at Corinth, and we looked at the difficulties Paul identifies, namely divisions. Divisions focused on social status differences among followers of Jesus at Corinth, and divisions focused on claims of spiritual status among particular members at Corinth. So today we move on to the question of how does Paul respond to this situation? And we'll be considering the type of rhetoric Paul uses. In the main, 1 Corinthians comes across as deliberative rhetoric. This is the type of rhetoric you would encounter in civic speeches in the Greco-Roman world. And it seems that Paul is well trained in the methods of argumentation, in the rhetorical methods, to deliberate about what they should be doing and change the way they've been behaving. That's what he attempts to do in 1 Corinthians. And what I'll do in this discussion is show the ways in which Paul's deliberative rhetoric, the fact that he's reflecting this Greco-Roman style of argumentation, is better understood by comparing Paul's letter with things like civic speeches. And so I go into Diochrysostom. He's a first century Greek living in Asia Minor, and we have quite a few of the speeches Diochrysostom gave to a variety of different cities in Asia Minor precisely dealing with the same sorts of issues that Paul deals with here in 1 Corinthians. Namely, Paul's argument is focused on arguing for unity and against discord among the followers of Jesus at Corinth. And likewise, when we look at Diochrysostom, we get a better glimpse into the sort of material that Paul is dealing with. And this underlines very clearly to us the ways in which Paul is reflecting civic discourses in his letters. Likewise, in this episode, we'll also discuss Paul's use of the body metaphor, which once again reflects civic discourses in the Greco-Roman world. And we'll use one particular example from a civic speech, which happens to be preserved in the historian Livy, in which the speaker uses the analogy of the body to show the importance of unity rather than division within the civic context. This then provides important background for understanding Paul's own use of the analogy of the body and the image of the body in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. So I hope you enjoy this discussion of Paul's response, which places this Judean, Paul, solidly within the Greco-Roman world. Here at Corinth, you're already getting a sense of Paul's response from, from what we've talked about so far and analyzing the situation. But let's now get a, a summary sort of idea of what sort of rhetoric he uses, his overall approach, his overall argument in his letter to the Corinthians here. Paul's got his thesis very clearly stated in the first couple paragraphs here. So look at chapter 1, verse 10, where we have a summary of what all of 1 Corinthians is really about, I would suggest to you we'll have to ask the question, what type of rhetoric is Paul using in this sort of context here? So here's the thesis. 
I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So this argument against dissensions and for oneness, against divisions, for concord, against discord, for concord. This is the whole focus of the entire letter. This language here in the thesis and also throughout Paul's letter, it's saturated with language from a particular type of rhetoric that you're already familiar with, and that is deliberative rhetoric. The rhetoric of giving a speech before the citizen body in order to get them to deliberate about what their future actions should be, to get them to change what they're doing and head in a new direction. So deliberative rhetoric is the dominant type of rhetoric that you find in 1 Corinthians. And the language of dissension, divisions on the one hand, and arguing against that and for concord and unity is characteristic of most deliberative speeches of the Greco-Roman world. Let me give you an example from the Greco-Roman world of a speech that might get you to realize more how much Paul's letter to the Corinthians sounds like a speech before a citizen body. Dio Chrysostom is a Greek who lives in Asia Minor in the late first century. We've got quite a few speeches from Chrysostom, speeches he gave to citizen bodies in various cities of Asia Minor. He was known as a good speaker. And quite often, if he was passing through an area, he would give a speech to the citizen body. And he would be familiar with, usually find out what's going on within the situation there and and construct a speech that would address the situation. This particular one is to the citizen body of Nicomedia, which is in Bithynia. You're already familiar with Bithynia. So Nicomedia is the place he's giving a speech to the citizen body, probably gathered in the theater. And he's talking about the relationship between the Nicomedians and a nearby city. Nicaea. Nicomedia and Nicaea, he knows quite well, are at odds with one another. There are rivalries between them. The rivalries for honor and the attempt to shame others is worked out at the local level between wealthy people. It's also worked out at the level between city versus city, trying to establish their honor over against shaming another. So that whole honor-shame culture that we're familiar with goes on in creating rivalries between different cities, not only rivalries between wealthy people, but rivalries from one city to the next. And here he knows that so much rivalry has been going on between Nicomedia and Nicaea that he's going to argue against it. He's going to argue against the divisions and dissension and strife. Those three terms recur in Dio Chrysostom's speech and in Paul's letter to the Corinthians. He's going to argue against those things and for concord, for unity. Let me read you a little bit of the speech so that you start to see how much it is similar to the style of argumentation that we find in Paul's letter. Here goes Dio Chrysostom. Very well, what is the subject on which I am about to offer advice and yet am reluctant to name it? He's been talking for quite a while, beating around the bush. Hasn't yet said what his topic is. Because he's trying to sort of create, this is part of rhetoric at the time and part of a speech and part of Paul's letters. You've got to create a relationship with your audience before you can get to the point, especially if you're going to try and get them to do something different, especially if it's deliberative. If you're praising them, you can get straight to the praising. But if you're doing deliberative rhetoric where you're saying, you guys are doing something wrong and you need to do this in the future instead, then you've got to sort of create an atmosphere of relationship with them and show why you're respectful and why they should listen to you and show, yes, that you're doing some right things, but there's, there may be things I need to talk to you about, and you create a relationship, and that's what's been going on, and now he's finally getting to the point. 
The word men of Nicomedia is not distasteful, whether in the home or in the clan or in friendly circles or cities or nations. For concord is what I'm going to talk about, a fine word and a fine thing. But if I proceed to add forthwith concord with whom, if I tell you who I want you to have concord with, I'm afraid that while you may be convinced that concord of and by itself is fine, you may believe that being concordant with those persons with whom I claim you should be concordant is impossible. For what till now has set you at your present enmity, one toward the other, enmity one toward the other, and has prevented the establishment of friendship, is the unreasoning conviction that concord is impossible for your cities. No, don't raise an outcry when I make a fresh start, but bear with me. What's interesting, before I go on with some more of this passage, is this phrasing, enmity one toward another. Very similar to the way that Paul talks. Uh, For example, in that first chapters 1 to 4 of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is dealing with the divisions, I belong to Paul, I belong to Apollos, I belong to Peter, those different house churches that are contentious. I have rivalries among one another. And he summarizes it with the phrase very similar to what Dio's talking about here, just to give you a sense of the same sort of rhetoric, the same sort of language, the same discourse is going on here. Paul here in 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 and following is saying this, and he says, the point of what I've been doing is that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Puffed up in favor of one against another. Very similar language here to describe dissension, to describe divisions and rivalries, both in Dio's speech and here in Paul's letter. Let me go on with Dio's speech here a little bit. What I say, men of Nicomedia, is that you must achieve concord with the Nicaeans. But hear me out and don't get angry yet before I state my reasons. For neither is the sick man angry with his physician when he prescribes his treatment, but, though he dislikes to hear him say he must submit to surgery or cautery, still he obeys, for his life is at stake. And yet, why have I said this? For my remedy, he's giving him, I'm the physician trying to heal you guys, For my remedy, the one I offer your cities is a most pleasant remedy and one without which no man would wish to live if he has good sense. But I want to break up my address and first of all to speak about concord itself in general, telling both where it comes from and what it achieves and then over against that to set out strife and hatred and contradistinction to friendship. For when concord has been proved to be beneficial This is the key word here, beneficial. When you write a deliberative speech, the mode of argumentation is advocating what is beneficial or advantageous. This is characteristic of deliberative speech. The speaker will be talking about what is advantageous or beneficial. Paul also uses this language. For example, when he's talking about your freedom, chapter 8, when he's talking about the Corinthians who say, um, I'm free to do what I will, and uh, I have knowledge, and I can do what I want. He talks about this. Not all things are beneficial. Not all things are advantageous. And he uses the same sort of language. Sometimes the gods are brought into these sorts of deliberative speeches about concord. And that's what happens next here with Dio. But I pray to all the gods, both yours and theirs, that if what I now say is said because of goodwill to you alone and not in pursuit of any personal glory or advantage to be derived from your reconciliation, and above all, if it is destined to be of advantage to the state, advantageous, 
If this is true, I pray that the gods may not only grant me such eloquence as is worthy of my cause, but that they may also make you willing to take my advice in the matters which are to your advantage. Theo Chrysostom calling on the authority of the gods behind his speech. I hope the gods will speak through me to convince you of concord. Quite similar to the dynamic of how God and Christ function in Paul's way of talking to the Christians at Corinth. We're not in two different worlds here. We're in the same world. We're in the Greco-Roman world. And we're here seeing Paul taking on the language of civic discourse and using deliberative rhetoric and showing his Greek side in uh, writing this letter to the Corinthians. Let me go on to another example of a typical thing to find in speeches to the civic bodies that we also find in Paul's letter, and that is the analogy of the body. When Paul's dealing with those problems, the problems he identified with the worship that we looked at in chapters 11 to 14, he has an analogy he uses to argue for unity. So throughout Paul's letter to the Corinthians, it's all about unity, just like Dio's speech is about concord and unity. And if you look through it again, you'll see it throughout, arguing against dissensions and strife and divisions and for unity. And in the midst of arguing for unity when they're worshiping together, instead of discord and disorder, he brings in the analogy of the body. So turn to chapter 12. We were looking at this earlier in connection with the spiritual gifts. Remember that? In the whole issue of Paul saying it's disorderly when they're worshiping together and, and that some people are thinking they're spiritually superior to others and there's divisions between them because of that. And here he gives the analogy of the body. This is Paul. And I'm soon going to give you an example of the sort, same sort of analogy used in a speech before a citizen body. For just as the body is one and has many members and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if an ear should say, because I am not an eye, he's getting a bit humorous here obviously too, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, he's getting really humorous. If he had a giant eye, if I were a giant eye walking around, you wouldn't... He's saying you wouldn't be able to do much, would you? Where would be the hearing? If the whole body were an ear, if I was a giant ear, where would be the sense of smell, etc.? So he's talking about you've got to be together. The parts of the body can't be divided, cannot be discordant and in dissension with one another. They have to be united in concord with one another. This is a very typical analogy to find in speeches, and let me read you one. This one happens to come from a Roman writer named Livy. Livy's writing in the time of Augustus. Once again, we're not trying to say people borrowed from anyone. We're not saying that. We're just saying this is common civic discourse that we're seeing reflected both in Livy and in Paul. Livy's a historian writing a Roman history. Historians in this period, when they write a history, construct speeches for the characters. So when they're writing the history of, of a particular political period, they'll have a political situation happening. They'll have the figures that they have evidence of that they're writing about and telling what they know about it from whatever sources they have, and then they'll construct a speech. Maybe he had a source that said Meninius Agrippa gave a speech about the body and the need for unity. Maybe he had something that told him that. But nonetheless, historians construct their speeches. And here he's putting into the mouth of Meninius Agrippa a speech that reflects precisely what we're talking about here as typical of deliberative rhetoric, typical of what you say speaking before a citizen body. This is the time, he says, where there's divisions in a particular city in Italy and people aren't getting along. It's, in this particular case, it's divisions between the lower classes and the upper classes. The lower classes aren't respecting the aristocracy. 
And here he's talking about a situation where someone addressed the crowd. The senatorial party accordingly decided to employ Menenius Agrippa as their spokesman to the commons of the Sacred Mount. He was a good speaker, and the commons liked him, as he was one of themselves. Admitted to the deserters' camp, he is said to have told them, in the rugged style of those far-off days, the following story. So he's talking to the people who are causing the division. Here's the speech. Long ago, when the members of the human body did not, as now they do, agree together, but had each its own thoughts and the words to express them in, the other parts resented the fact that they should have the worry and trouble of providing everything for the belly. That belly gets all the good stuff, the rest of the body parts were saying. But here already we have this idea back when the, when the parts of the body expressed themselves. We have talking members of the body in Paul, right, uh, that we were just reading from. Everything seems to go to the belly, they complain, which remained idle, surrounded by its ministers, with nothing to do but enjoy the pleasant things they gave it. So the discontented members plotted together that the hand should carry no food to the mouth, that the mouth should take nothing that was offered it, and that the teeth should accept nothing to chew. But alas, while they sought in their resentment to subdue the belly by starvation, they themselves and the whole body wasted away to nothing. By this, it was apparent that the belly too has no means service to perform. It receives food indeed, but it also nourishes in its turn the other members, giving back to all the parts of the body through all its veins the blood it has made by the process of digestion. And upon this blood, our life and our health depend. End of speech. Livy comments here. This fable of the revolt of the body members, Meninius applied to the political situation, pointing out its resemblance to the anger of the populace against the governing class. And so successful was his story that their resentment was mollified. So here we have very similar sort of use of the body analogy to argue against disunity and for unity. Not only that, but even more of the specifics. Paul talks about the importance of less obvious and innards. Uh, Paul talks about that too. Uh, similar to what's going on in this particular speech. So Paul here is reflecting Greco-Roman rhetoric of the deliberative kind, and we're seeing Paul, a well-trained person in Greek rhetoric, writing his letter to the Christians at Corinth to argue for unity and against discord. That concludes this episode. I hope you'll come again. In the meantime, you can browse my website at philipharlan.com. I like early Christianity. The introductory music of this podcast is my own remix of Brian Eno and David Byrne's Help Me Somebody from My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, copyright 1981, None Such Records, with an Uzbek vocal sample by Savara Nazarkhan from her song Kunlarim, copyright 2007, Real World Music. Both are used with permission under Creative Commons type licenses.